0: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a special guest with us today who happens to be a longtime listener of this podcast who reached out and demonstrated his skill and ability to talk about a particular topic that is near and dear to my heart— And so we're going to talk about that. So his name is Todd Lewis. He graduated from Malone University with a degree in history and philosophy. He has extensive knowledge of history, theology, philosophy, and libertarian theory with a special focus on church history, Anabaptist theology, New Testament exegesis, and practical Christian living. Today, he is on to talk why libertarian Christians should be minded toward what we commonly call pacifism. Todd, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Doug. So we actually had your dad on about a month or so ago to talk about a similar issue. And I, you know, we've talked off air about this and my listeners know that, you know, we do try to cover the topic of Christian non-resistance or pacifism or, you know, there's all kinds of names for it, but whether pejoratively spoken or, you know, this is just the most accurate term. Because what I feel is very important for Christians to notice in the conversation about how we relate to others is something that libertarians are very familiar with, which is the non-aggression principle. And so that default mode of non-aggression should at least warm our ears toward the idea that a Christian should be against violence of all kinds. So I think in terms of our conversation here, what I would love to hear from you is a little bit of, one, just how you got interested in, in this topic. And also, you know, what words do you... Tend to use to describe yourself this way. Do you use the term Christian pacifist? You know, where where are you on that? And then we can kind of you know continue the discussion there.
1: Well, I would say what got me started on this track was firstly, as uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, you had my dad on, and part of his process in writing his books about church and the state and the U.S. Empire were based on conversations he had with me growing up as I was reading history, sort of what you might call the uncensored history, not what the government schools want you to hear, but what (laughs) <laughs> it's actually out there. And it's not quite what you hear in the government schools or the History Channel. And I started breaking down a lot of these barriers. And there was a point where I was, right around the time of going to college, where I was getting old enough to have to think about the draft. And at that point, I would have taken a just war, a principal just war position. The problem is the U.S. government doesn't really recognize that as a position. You either are a pacifist, in which case you can you know, have a selective service exemption or you're not. And so we decided, well, let's take a deeper dive into this issue because we need to know what to say on this question. And dad started with the politics of Jesus and John Howard Yoder. He read that. He mentioned that I should read some of these other supplementary materials. And because I was a historian by profession, I was thinking, well, well what's, what's the historical track record genealogy of this? Like what's, how far does this go back? And, you know, if you follow it all the way back this is a bit of a contentious claim, but I think uh, Calansis and Cider, in their recent works, Caesar and the Lamb and the Christians on Killing, would bear this out, that that was the original position. Prior to Constantine, there was no other position on this question of war. And then the, the debate begins after that. And so what I would say is that looking at the how, how early it was, and then how there's this very compelling exegetical argument made by the likes of Yoder and Hauerwas and others, that you you come up to a position like that, and then that's what sort of convinced me that the just war position wasn't adequate, but the sort of impetus for that was figuring out what to do with the selective service because well technically we don't have a draft, there's still a draft on the back burner, if you will, in case of an emergency unquote, so you had to figure out what to do with that mm-hmm. now, as to the term pacifist eh this is actually how I actually found the Libertarian Christian Podcast was looking up videos about Christians talking about pacifism and your third episode was on pacifism. And I watched it and, or listened to it rather, and it and it came through and I was like, yeah, this is a very interesting discussion. And I don't remember, you had like four or five people involved in that episode, but one of them said that the word pacifist often has the negative connotation of being passive or inactive or just standing by as a spectator. and And ultimately that is unfortunate and a lot of people do think that way. It's a, let me put it this way. I don't object to the term pacifism. If by that you're, you're saying that this is, this is the best descriptor you have for me and you're not using it as a gist of uh, mm-hmm. a way to shut down the conversation. Cause yeah. labels like that can be effective if they're used to, you know, in, in good faith. And so really, it's more the intent of the user of the label. But there's a term that I really like that I think is better than pacifism. And it's a part of the the Anabaptist tradition. It's the German word, wehrluggesite. And it means either to be defenseless or to go about weaponless, which within the context of living out Christ's teachings of loving your enemies and loving your neighbor, which I think has a more positive definitional aspect to it than how the pacifism, unfortunately, has a more negative connotation to it.
0: Yeah, I think in people's minds, the idea of a pacifist is someone who just literally stands by helpless and watches, you know, a gunman in the restaurant kill other people. And it's like, oh, well, yep, I'm helpless because I'm following Jesus. It's too bad. Like, that's kind of the impression people get. Whereas, if you ask people who are strong pacifists, like Howard Yoder, uh, although he's passed, but like these people who are theologically inclined and have a rigorous defense of it, it's not really about being helpless and defenseless it's really about being minded toward a broader longer vision of how do we relate to one another in a way that reduces violence overall without the use of you know either preemptive or reactive violence and so you can maybe criticize the person who stands by with his with you know shrugs his shoulders and says i can't do anything because i'm a christian You can criticize that, but you can't really criticize people who are very thoughtful toward how do we embody an alternative politic that demonstrates who Jesus, how Jesus wanted us to live. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. One other thing I'd like to add is, without getting too much into the history of it, because it's a little bit beyond the scope of this, but the tradition that I would identify with is, is, this has always existed after Constantine. In the fourth century, there was a sect of the Donatists called the Rogatists, which were adhere to these principles of pacifism. The Waldensians of the Middle Ages Uh were often another famous example. And then, of course, beginning in the 16th century, the Anabaptists themselves. And I think the reason why this thread strand continued was because in the West, especially in England and the United States and Canada, a more tolerant position towards dissenting religious belief developed, such that they weren't snuffed out as some of the earlier traditions were.
0: I know that many of our listeners are interested in the history and sort of the the backstory and context of you know how these develop. But I also know that when it comes down to it, and I don't think you would agree, what saith the scriptures is sort of top of mind. And so when you, you reach out to me and said, Hey, we should we should talk about pacifism, I have this sort of you know, unique take on it, some a different way to present it and, and defend it. Let's go to scripture and let's start where, where that is. What is your scriptural basis for pacifism?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, briefly, I, I'd like to say that in this broader debate that's been going on for the last 30, 40 years between the just war tradition and the pacifist tradition, one thing that I, I really have been disappointed at is except for maybe a few highlighted verses, maybe Romans 12 and 13, obviously Roman 13 is a football that gets kicked around. Matthew 5, there's kind of a lot of, not a lot of attention to the, the passages in scripture that could be relevant to this issue. And so briefly, I'd like to divide it into two sections, Old Testament prophecy, and then New Testament praxis. So, you know, P and P, prophecy and praxis. So with Old Testament prophecy, we've got essentially three groups. There's actually four verses, but two of the verses fall into one. Isaiah two one through four and Micah four one through three. Without going into too much detail, there's three events that are being described here. One is that the Messiah is coming to Jerusalem to teach peace to the Gentiles to bring the Gentiles into the church. Now, what shows that the Gentiles have come in? Well, they beat their swords into the plowshares. So it would seem from these two passages that all these events happening around the same time. And if we look at the New Testament. Almost all Christians would agree that Christ did come to Jerusalem, that Christ did bring the Gentiles into the church. For example, Ephesians 2.19, Acts 2, 5 to 13. But then they're going to debate and say, well, 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 maybe they didn't beat their swords into pruning hooks and their spears into plowshares. And again, if you look at the early church commentaries, well, they didn't really have commentaries, they had glosses, you know, brief comments on these verses. But the glosses they have on these verses are consistently. Taking in a pacifist position of the the now and not yet now in the church because the Gentiles are in the church but not yet in the world and so if somebody says well it hasn't gone from sea to sea yet well of course but that's not the point it's going to happen in in the church as a result of Christ coming to bring the Gentiles in Zechariah nine is famous of course because it's uh, Christ's triumphal entry in uh, Matthew twenty one four to five and what we see in, in the, if we break it down, the first verse is Christ coming in on the donkey. The second verse is the weapons of war being destroyed. And the third verse that I mentioned here is Christ pouring out his blood as water for the new covenant. Well, verse nine was fulfilled with the triumphal entry. Verse 11 was fulfilled with the last supper, Matthew 26, 28, Mark 14, 24, Luke 22, 20. So if the preceding verse and the succeeding verse are both fulfilled in the new Testament. It seems very unlikely that the verse sandwiched in between hasn't happened yet, if the one before and the one after has. Hosea 2, 16 to 18 talks about God betrothing his people, and what is the sign of his betrothing of the people is that he has made a covenant with the birds and the beasts. That's later, that hasn't happened yet in my mind, but he will also destroy war from his people. And we know that Christ has betrothed the church, Ephesians chapter 5. So that has also been fulfilled in the New Testament. And all of these prophetic passages about Christ point out that the proof of these things happening is that at least the Christians no longer practice war. Now, then somebody might say, well, okay, that's all well and good. But what does the New Testament say? What does Christ actually teach us? What does Paul actually teach us? Now, if we look at Matthew 5, which that's one of the, the most famous verses that everybody loves to discuss and for good reason. I mean, there's a lot there. I would say the important thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that these are antitheses. So the first two, not lusting and not hating, you know, everybody would say, yeah, definitely, you know, we shouldn't do that. And they take the radical about face of these antitheses at face value. But when it comes to the latter three antitheses, they'd say, well, no, I don't know if we should take it that radically. Mm -hmm. And, And I would argue that the grammatical structure doesn't change. So the first two antitheses that almost all Christians take at face value, the same grammatical structure exists in the latter three, which means we we would need really, really good reasons, reasons I don't think have been provided, to not read them in the same radical point-counterpoint way. And if we do that, I think we come up with a very much more radical Christian ethic. And so for example, when it says, you know, do not resist the evil one, you know, the Greek word pronopos could mean Satan himself, evil in general, or the evil person. Well, obviously we're told to resist Satan and we're told to resist evil in general. So it has to be the evil person. And we kind of know that because the example of going an extra mile, you know, conscripting someone as core of labor is a sign of conscription of occupation. And so it's a kind of passive non-compliance a kind of civil resistance, if you will, Uh you're, you're sort of, it's like when Paul is thrown into prison and he says, you threw me into prison, a Roman citizen without trial. And you want to hush this up? No, you got to come and take me out of prison and deal with the consequences of what you just did. It's a kind of lever. It's kind of a judo throw where you leverage the power they have against them. Uh And so basically this kind of actually segues very nicely with that statement that was made in your third episode, that a Christian ethic might demand more than what libertarian theory requires. That's sort of what Christ is doing with the law of Moses in the antitheses. So for example, you know, you were supposed to restore a cloak to a man at night, but then when Christ says, if somebody asks for your cloak, give him your undergarment as well, he's sort of one-upping it. He's sort of like utilizing that mosaic command to then one-up it. And so if we look at these antitheses in Matthew chapter 5, the latter three, I think, should be interpreted just as radically as the first two are, because I don't see any difference in the grammatical structure. I think the most interesting verse in the New Testament, and one that often gets overlooked, is John eighteen thirty six, where Christ is before Pilate and says, my kingdom is none of this world. And what's interesting here is the word, he said, otherwise my servants would fight to protect me. The word fight here is the Greek word, engonzonado, which literally translated means to fight in hand-to-hand combat which often is not how it's translated in any of the English Bibles. But if you take it that sort of radically, that, that directly, that viscerally, Christ is literally telling Pilate, my people aren't going to fight because the kingdom they're fighting to defend isn't a physical kingdom. And the way a lot of these translations have it is fight it's not quite as visceral as engaging in hand-to-hand combat, which is what the literal translation would be. Like
0: beating each other up could be like a phrase that we could get yes. somewhat toward that, yeah.
1: In Ephesians 6.12, and Paul lays out the armor of God and you know, why we fight. He says, we fight not against flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. It's often translated wrestle. But the problem is wrestles a bit of a bloodless term here because while it's technically correct, it's actually false because pale, the Greek word, which is translated as wrestle, can also mean to engage in hand-to-hand combat. And given that Paul gives us a list of the legionaries' battle gear, I think that's probably a better translation than just wrestling. In in which case, the battle, the war that we're fighting is a real battle and a real war, but it's against principalities and powers, spiritual forces, not other people. The best analogy today would be the Matrix, where we're, we're fighting the agents, not the people plugged into the Matrix. And the agents would be standing in for demonic powers.
0: I want to go back to one of the things you said, I, and I realized that you were saying this as like, people's main interest would be in the New Testament. But when you quoted the Old Testament, you said people want to know what's in the New Testament. And I'm like, well, okay, that's good. But I think one of the things that I didn't personally, and, and I, I suspect other people would kind of have done this too, is like, I didn't take seriously the vision as I was growing up, I mean, the vision that the Old Testament had toward what the kingdom of God was to look like, and to what the people within the kingdom of God were to either be a part of, or that one day, whether you're a dispensationalist, whether you're a non-millennialist, or whatever, at some point you do realize that the prophecies and the vision of what is a good world, what does a just, a socially just world really look like? you know, from the vantage point of the Old Testament prophets, it doesn't look violent at all. And so even if you're, if you have no interest in realized eschatology and you're just kind of like, oh, that's all in the future or whatever. And we just, you know, we're going to muddle along now and, and, and do just war and all this other stuff. Like you have to admit that the Old Testament vision for a good world is absent of violence and that people have put away violence. And so you know, one of the things that I've I've seen as I've moved on in my, in my theology in certain ways, it's like, oh, that vision is something that we can carry on with today. We don't have to wait for that. And so that's one thing that, you know, stands out to me as you're talking is like these verses are rich with vision. They're not commands in the same way or they're not admonitions or they're not propositional statements the way we're used to reading in the epistles or even in the gospels. And so I think we we give them a little bit less authority because they're not dictates, but we definitely tend to gloss over them more than we more than we probably should. I'm assuming you agree with me mostly there. But, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, and you know the other thing that I you know want to note with respect to Jesus saying that you know give your undergarment also, the one-upping, the the go further thing, that's actually something that was carried. I mean, the Law of Moses actually sort of did that, but from a negative to neutral perspective. Like eye for an eye was meant to de-escalate violence mm-hmm. because what was supposed to happen in cultures surrounding them, it's like, well, if someone you know punches you, you punch him twice. You know, you you ratchet up the violence, and so when the law is laid down where it's eye for an eye, you equalize. You know, it's only a trade equal for equal, that prepares then for the through the rest of Scripture for God to say, nope, we're going we're gonna go the opposite direction, and we're actually going to reduce violence, not just reduce the ratchet effect.
1: Exactly, it's not just breaking even; it's actually going positive in the peace direction, and. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, and 4 re- sort of reiterates a lot of uh, Ephesians 6. And again, we we see that Paul makes it clear that while we are in the flesh, our warfare and our weapons are not of the flesh. And that's the Greek word sarx, in which case flesh in this sense means the physical substance of which we're made, not the world the flesh and the devil or the, the sinful mm-hmm. tendencies right. that we have. And again, what what Paul is saying is that the Christian life is a battle every bit as rigorous as as training for the Marine Corps or something, or in his day, the Roman Legion. But we're not fighting other people. We're fighting, firstly, the evil in ourselves, but also, more importantly, the principalities and powers that hold people captive to Satan. So, for example, one thing people will say is, what about all of these martial narratives in the New Testament, these martial metaphors? For example, in Paul, well, the reason why Paul gives all these martial metaphors is we are fighting a real battle, but I think Paul makes it really clear that this battle is a spiritual one in which a military analogy is every bit as appropriate as, say, storming the beaches of Normandy would be for a, a physical battle. And if we look at all of these individually, they, all of these verses, I think, make a good case for a sort of robust Christian nonviolent position But I think also, cumulatively, pardon the uh, militaristic analogy, but like a Roman fascist, a bundle of sticks, one stick is easy to break, but a bundle of sticks isn't. They cumulatively make a fascist of an argument that's difficult to break. Uh, And I think it's that cumulative effect of putting this all together. As you said earlier, it creates a vision. And it creates a vision that is very, I think, hard to square with a just war tradition.
0: Yeah. I know that when we have these conversations about pacifism, especially when we're dealing with libertarian ethics, because there's always the the personal side, and then there's the sort of national policy side. Like, what should America do? Or what should my country's military do? Or should I be in favor of my country's military and, you know, what should foreign policy look like versus what do I personally choose to do? Like, do I personally carry a gun versus own a gun versus do I, you know, sign up for service? So there's a lot of, there's the personal side and then there's the policy side of things. And so we've been talking a little bit, kind of, maybe a little bit back and forth. Do you have any thoughts on how to sort of conceptually parse out whether a Christian should be part of this? Like, should advocate for just war versus maybe there's room for some self-defense like where do you where do you take that sort of delineation
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so i mean obviously we conceptually we can make a distinction between a christian supporting this or that individual war based on a matter of principle that it conforms to his understanding of just war and then personal defense i would argue that when asking any of these questions the first thing that we have to look at and ask is what would Christ do right because peter tells us that christ was a lived example for us to follow so if if you were to think of jesus the see what people tend to forget about how christians relate to jesus is is it's an analogy so it's going to have some defects in it but i think it's as good an analogy as you can get if you think about like the greek schools of philosophy when these people were following their teachers like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and the Stoics, they looked at the leader as someone that they were going to imitate and follow. And they, they then tried to then imitate that philosopher in their own life and their own practice. And I think all too often Christians tend to lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. And they see Jesus as someone who maybe sells fire insurance, but they don't really have to live like he did. You know, how often have we all heard? Oh well, well, Jesus had to die because he had to die for our sins. So of course he couldn't have fought the Romans or fought the Jews or, or something like that. <laughs> well, then that just begs the question: when he, when he rose from the dead, why didn't he uh, even the scores? Right, at least not right then and there. But what I would say is that I want to. Uh, way- can
0: I jump in for a second and just sure. make a comment? Do you understand that like they would have assumed that a Messiah returning from the dead would have would have come back with vengeance? And you know what his first words were? Fear not.
1: Peace I bring to you. <laughs> yeah,
0: peace I It's like, okay, so even yeah, you carry that thought out and be like, well, why, why didn't he do anything afterward? Well, that's just not what he's about, dude.
1: Well, yeah, and I would argue that the real question we need to ask ourselves as Christians is, is how did Jesus relate to the kingdoms of the world and how did Jesus relate to people that tried to kill him? So, right, we have two issues here, yeah. right? National policy issues and then personal issues. Well, Jesus was surprisingly unconcerned with the affairs of the world, where he called Herod that fox. Uh, he doesn't really care about what's going on in the kingdoms of the world. And the people in his own little corner of Judea that tried to kill him, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't rebuke them. He didn't fight back or argue back against them with, with hate or malice or violence. You know, no violence was found in him, Isaiah says.
0: So... Yeah, that's about as propositional of a verse as you can find to describe Jesus
1: exactly and and i think i think again i really like that focus you had of a vision that's being pointed to and if we look at the life of christ how he relates to the to the state and to those who who try to kill him i think we see a specific vision and that vision i think clashes pretty severely with a just war position or i'm going to blow you away because i have a six shooter position
0: hmm. so let's talk a little bit about how this directly ties into libertarianism you know, you you talked about that with me off, you know, before we turned on the mic, as it were. And, you know, some as a Christian, I think we've kind of made the case that as Christians, we should be minded this way, if not give it some semblance of, I guess what I'm trying to say is that many Christians who are libertarians write off pacifism. And I've even heard a few of them say that it's immoral or it's unethical, and and I understand why they say that, because in their minds, they're imagining a certain piece of situation that if a pacifist let happen, it would be an immoral thing. And I would even tend to say, yes, you're right. At the same time, I think these conversations that I like to have with people like you, people like Ron Sider, uh, I can't remember some of the other guests that we've had on who've come on to talk about this, your dad, is that this is not something that should be so out of bounds for a libertarian to accept because of the non-aggression principle. But as a Christian, it's a little easier to say, oh, well, hey, here's the scriptures and, and here's the evidence and, and here's where we're going to you know, come out on it. You should really weigh these things heavily. What about the libertarian? Like from the libertarian side of our brains, if you will, why is this of interest?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple ways you could tackle this. I think one is certainly if one is a Christian libertarian and having read Christian libertarian material, I I noticed that Christian libertarians often kind of get it both ways, right? They get it from certain groups of Christians who don't like their anti-state position. And they get it from certain kinds of non-Christian libertarians who view Christianity as either a kind of neo-Puritanism where the state they're gonna use the state to stop us from having fun if you don't like it. Or it's going to like be a neo- crusade where it just whitewashes imperial wars. What I would argue is if you take a sort of holistic reading of of these New Testament and even Old Testament prophecies, what you end up getting is a vision and a perspective that would not lead to those kinds of aberrations that they're afraid of, and that they while, while a, a Christian worldview may not be libertarian necessarily. It might not it depends on how it's cashed out in 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 time, but one truly rooted in a deep understanding of scripture would not be one that would violate their rights, and so they wouldn't need to fear that in the way that they might maybe need to fear living next to a you know Isis or living next to the Aztecs or something where that kind of religiosity would lead to aggression against those people as as far as also libertarianism and pacifism I, I know that Bob Murphy is a libertarian pacifist, so it's certainly a live question qua libertarian. And he's he has his own rational choice theory based on doves and hawks, which as far as I can remember is the idea that every violent action to redress a wrong runs a higher cost, not just financial cost, but you might actually die. So in a kind of game theoretic perspective, it's better to take the nonviolent route because odds are, you know you're you're going to have a solution that's less costly both in terms of blood and treasure
0: i i don't think i knew that that was bob's angle on it that's interesting now i have another guest i could have on to talk about this from yet another perspective
1: <laughs> exactly well cuz what, what's interesting about bob murphy is is he's trying to make an argument directly to libertarians so he's not going to make a theological argument he's using a rational choice theory argument
0: so what else would you have our listeners know that is important to this debate or to this discussion or theological inquiry?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that is really important to bring out on both sides of this debate is that there are a lot of people that are embedded in faith traditions that, for better or for worse, create a certain set of assumptions and heuristics that they use when they read the bible so that's how you could have you know a pacifist and, and a just war theorist both read romans 13 and come to completely different conclusions or you could have you know a catholic a protestant and an orthodox read the passage of where christ gives peter the keys of the kingdom and you get completely different interpretations uh-huh. in, in part it's because these are all informed by faith traditions that they're embedded in and in order to get beyond just the sort of impasse that seems to happen all the time, I would I would invite people to one step out of those faith traditions and try to understand how the other side could could conceivably articulate that position on, the, on that particular passage. That doesn't mean you necessarily have to abandon your faith tradition. It just means you step outside of it long enough to to look at it that way.
0: My wife and I often call this borrowing a position for a little while. There you go. You have to kind of try it on.
1: And the other thing that I would say is a lot of times people think they're doing exegesis when they're really doing eisegesis. And the eisegesis they're really doing is infusing their own faith traditions interpretation into the passage without necessarily doing the due diligence to see if that passage uh, really says what that faith tradition wants it to say, or or also there are passages that are incompatible with certain faith traditions, which are de facto ignored, and that's maybe even worse. Well,
0: I think you know having this conversation with you has helped. I think move the conversation forward. I think some of the passages that you connect in our conversation here, and just you know the the way in which you have an angle on the situation brings out something in the conversation. And and I especially appreciate what you just said there is, you know, step out of the mindset that you might have, the faith tradition might have. And like, All right, how can, how can someone else think this way? And that exercise in and of itself doesn't mean, like you said, doesn't mean you have to abandon what you, you're already believing, but, I mean, for crying out loud, we all know that that's actually the right thing to do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is to understand, even if it's just to sharpen our own minds on our own position, right? And so, you know, those crazy pacifists, they would just let people stand by and get slaughtered, wouldn't they? Well, no, not really, because that's actually not the history of it. And so there's there's a lot more to that, that could be said. But I really appreciate you coming on to have, you know, kind of further this conversation with me. And to, you know, bring it to our audience. And I'll have to say, I'm really appreciating that one of our listeners is now a guest on our show. And this is actually, you're not the only, you're not the first one, but like, just in sense of like, hey, you reached out and we had a brief conversation and this was like, hey, this should be, this should be a podcast. So that was, that was just, this was really great. And I I, uh, encourage all of our listeners to reach out to us and connect, you know, in a future episode, you might be, you might be a guest too. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. So Todd, I appreciate you coming on and and furthering the conversation with me.
1: Well, Well, thank you very much, Doug. I'm glad to be here.